All right, let's start with a word of prayer. We'll continue our series. Father in heaven, you have blessed us already this morning in many ways. We have enjoyed singing. We have enjoyed being sung to. We've loved hearing the testimony of Helen and her team and Summer and her experience. Father, we have returned offering, and some of us will yet return offerings at the door as we go out. Father, you've already ministered to us in so many ways. We have prayed. We have fellowshiped. Shortly hereafter, we'll eat, socialize. But Father, now in this part of the service, as we turn our attention to the text, Father, you know that my prayer, the prayer of Pastor Jared, Pastor Daniel, and the leadership team here, is that we will see an increase, not just in biblical literacy, but an increase in biblical passion. Father, that we would have a passion for the text, a passion for the word, a passion for scripture and the God of scripture. That it wouldn't just be a book that sits on the shelf waiting every week to go for a walk to church, but that it would be a book that becomes a part of our lives, a part of our DNA, and thus a part of the DNA of this church. Father, today as we turn our attention again to Abraham, as we turn our attention to the Old Testament, Help us to remember that these were real people living in real time, in real places, with real experiences, with a very real God. And may we see them as not so different from ourselves. Real people living in a real place who need a real experience with a very real God. Be with us now, Father, as we open the text, as we open Scripture. May you open us is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to the book of Genesis. No surprise there. Genesis chapter 12. Now, I'm just going to spend a very few moments letting you know where we're sort of going in our second chapter. We went over this last Sabbath, but I want to quickly review it. If only because I'm going to give you a bit of a preview for some of the exciting guest speakers that we're going to have right here at Kingscliff in the coming weeks. And I'm very excited about this. In addition to the superb preaching that Pastor Daniel and Pastor Jared bring, coming up in the very near future after the call of Abraham next, uh, and the covenant with Abraham, next Sabbath, Jared's going to speak to us about Hagar and Ishmael. Then the following Sabbath... Uh, Paul, our own TVAC principal, Paul Fua, is going to talk to us about Lot. And uh, I already know a little bit of what he's going to be sharing, and I tell you, I'm really excited about that message and really excited about the contribution it's going to make to this overall series. The next Sabbath, uh, which will be the last Sabbath of Big Camp, our own Sam Benello, I almost said Pastor Sam Benello, maybe that would have been a prophecy. Our own Sam Benello is going to bring to us a sermon on Sodom and Gomorrah. And in some ways, I'm really happy that Sam is getting that one because it's a tough one. It's a difficult one. And I want to see, I see you nodding your head. I want to see how he wrestles with the text. And I'm looking forward to that. And then after that, the very next Sabbath, which will be the first Sabbath after Big Camp, I think it's April 25, after Big Camp is done, we've got a great sermon on the offering of Isaac that's going to be brought to us by my best friend in the Lord, um, Pastor Nathan Renner, who will also be with us at Big Camp. And uh, we're going to be really excited to have him here in our local church. I can't wait for that. And then the following Sabbath, look at this. The marriage of Isaac is going to be brought to us by another one of my favorite people on earth, 
James Rafferty. And so we've got some really exciting, not only topics coming up, but some really exciting guest speakers coming up. And I had a pastor call me just yesterday and say, hey, I have a question about this. It's actually Pastor Marcus, your former pastor. And uh, he said, hey, I got a question. I, I'm watching your series on YouTube um, that you're doing there on A Blazing Grace. What do you do when you get a guest speaker? Do they just preach on whatever they want, or do you tell them what to preach on? And I said, well, it's very simple. It works like this. We tell them we'd love for them to preach in the church, and if they would like to, they can preach on this subject, and if not, they're going to enjoy a great sermon on that subject. And uh, so the, the answer is yes, they are given a choice, but it's not a choice about what to preach, but whether or not to preach. And uh, the really nice thing is that in every case so far, with Sam and Paul and James and Ty and Jeffrey and Nathan, in every case, they've been like, yeah, it's really kind of cool to have a topic assigned to you because it challenges you to maybe look at a passage of Scripture that you might not otherwise be at the top of the list that you were thinking about. And so it's going to be a great series as we continue. The second of our chapters is we're talking about the family. We're already through the beginning, and now we're talking about the family. Let's spend just a a few quick minutes sort of catching us up to where we are in the book of Genesis and especially in the story of Abraham. We have stated last Sabbath, and let's remind ourselves, that clearly the structure of the book of Genesis reveals that Moses is moving purposefully and speedily toward the story of Abraham. How do we know that? How do we know what Moses' uh, intent was as an author? Well, it's actually very clear from the basic structure of the book of Genesis. What you have up here is a simple diagram that shows that in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapters 1 to 11, we cover basically 1,700 to 2,000 years of Earth's history and basically four major events, right? You will remember the creation, the fall of mankind, the global flood, and finally the Tower of Babel. So some 2,000 years of history covered in four events and in 11 chapters. But then the moment that Abraham arrives, or excuse me, Moses arrives at the story of Abraham, he immediately slows down. And from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 50, right, 39 chapters, much more by comparison, basically three times as much, nearly uh, more than three times as much, he spends on 300 years of history, basically the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the sons of Jacob who would eventually become the tribes of Israel. And so Moses is clearly not writing an encyclopedic history. He's not writing an exhaustive history. He's not writing a history just for history's sake. He's he's writing a very specific kind of history. He's racing to get to the story of Abraham. And the reason for that is, as we said last Sabbath, that from Moses' perspective, in fact, from the whole Bible's perspective, God's call of Abraham was the answer to the sin and disloyalty of Adam and Eve. And so the structure of Genesis reveals that there's something significantly and centrally important about this figure, Abraham. Well, to sort of recap what we uh, spent time on last Sabbath, you will recall that Moses, as he paints the story of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, he paints humanity as faced with two major problems. And we can call these maybe dimensional problems. One exists in the vertical dimension, the other in the horizontal The vertical problem is the separation that mankind has from God. And this is sort of epitomized in the verse there in Genesis chapter 3, where after Adam and Eve have partaken of the forbidden fruit, it says that Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. 
There's a division there. There's a separation. There's a fragmentation between God and his creation. And so we have what we might call the problem of Genesis 3. Vertical separation. But as the story continues to unfold, particularly after the flood, when mankind builds this tower, a tower whose top would reach into the heavens, God comes down and confuses the language so that now humanity is not only separated and fragmented vertically, but humanity becomes separated and fragmented horizontally from one another. And now there's divisions, national divisions, racial divisions, cultural divisions, linguistic divisions, religio-political divisions, socioeconomic divisions, and that's the world that you were born into. You were born into a world of us and them, right? We're Australia, and they are, whatever, New Zealand. Um, we live on this side of the mountain, they live on that side of the mountain. We live on this side of the river, they live on that side of the river. We speak like this, they speak like that, they look like this, we look like that, etc. We were born into a world of divisions where our parents, sometimes healthfully and sometimes unhealthfully, communicated to us that we were fundamentally distinct and different from those around us. Now that can happen in healthy ways, right? You can know who you are, you can know your culture, you can know your identity, and there's nothing wrong with that. The unhealthy part happens when your culture or your person or your race or your color or your language or your religion or even your geography becomes superior to others. And then we end up with all kinds of isms, right? Racism and and its ilk. So what we have in in the story that Moses has crafted is a really telling and accurate picture of the human predicament in which we find ourselves today, separated from God fundamentally, vertically, and separated from one another socially and horizontally. Well, God calls Abraham to undo this division, this fragmentation. And we we showed this last Sabbath sort of as as a very simple way of articulating that From Genesis chapter 11, it says that the peoples of the earth were scattered abroad over the face of all the earth. And then the very next thing that happens is God's call of Abraham, and God makes a promise to Abraham. And the, the center of that promise, the guts of that promise, was that God said, Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. The end of which was, the purpose of which was, the intent of which was, Abraham, in you All the families of the earth will be blessed. Don't miss that. The immediate turnaround, the immediate transition from the fragmentation of the nations in Genesis 11 to the healing of the nations in Genesis 12. And this remarkable figure Abraham, says God, is going to be right at the center of what God is doing both vertically and horizontally. He essentially says, I'm going to put the earth back together through you. Now, as we read the book of Genesis, it's impossible to miss that again and again, these two ideas come up, the land and the descendants, the land and the descendants, over and over again. In fact, that's the nature of the first promise that God makes to Abraham. He says, I will multiply your descendants and you will inherit the land. Land and descendants, land and descendants. And the remarkable thing is, is that that is little more than a recapitulation of the original promise that God had given to Adam and Noah both. God had said to Adam and Eve, here's the garden, here's the land, be fruitful and multiply. Fill it with your descendants. After the flood, as the waters had receded, Noah comes out of the ark, and the very first thing that God says to Noah as he steps out of the ark is, Noah, be fruitful and multiply. Here's the land, vacant and vacated though it be, fill it. Fill it with your descendants. 
And where Adam had to some degree succeeded, but mostly failed, and where Noah had to some degree, but also failed, we didn't get into Noah too much, God sees something in Abraham, and we're going to talk today about what that is. God says, Abraham, here's the land spread out before you. And he uses all of these fascinating little metaphors. He says, as the stars of the sky, so will your descendants be. As the, as the sand of the sea, so will your descendants be. If a man could count, your descendants will be innumerable. Here's the land, Abraham, fill it. So to Adam, be fruitful and multiply. To Noah, be fruitful and multiply. And in effect, to Abraham, I will exceedingly I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Now, that, bring, that catches us up on our review. Let's now launch into the covenant that God made with Abraham. And the, I feel like the most biblically responsible way for me to do this is to sort of show you the, the, the pace and the, and the basic structure of what takes place in the chapters immediately after Genesis 1 to 11. So it's on, a, it's on your screen here. Try to really get this basic template, this basic scheme in your mind, okay? Here we go. First of all, we've already spent time here on Genesis chapters 1 to 11. I know this slide is a little busy. It might be somewhat difficult to read, but I've done this because it's helpful if you see it all visually together. Genesis 1 to 11, we've already talked about the four major events, the creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel, followed by Abraham and his call. Moses hits the brakes. He's been racing through human history. He hits the brakes at Abraham. And the first thing that we're sort of revealed, the first thing that we're told, the first thing that's revealed to us about the call of Abraham is God's promise to put the earth back together through him. I will bless you and you will be a blessing. Now here's a remarkable thing. The very next thing that happens in Genesis 12, verses 10 to 20, is Abraham travels to Egypt. And when he arrives there, you might remember He says to Sarah, just before entering the area of the Egyptians, hey, look, you're a beautiful woman. And if if they think that you're my wife, they may kill me so that they can take you as my wife. So Abraham thought that it was sensible to lie about the precise nature of his relationship with Sarah. So he said, hey, let's say you're my sister. Well, sure enough, as Abraham had anticipated, when they came into the land, Pharaoh's Uh, counselors and others noticed that in fact Sarah was a beautiful woman. She must have been fantastically beautiful because she was not young particularly by this age, though she was going to live to be much longer than we today live. So she would have been about middle-aged. By today's standards, she would have probably been in her late 30s or early 40s. She was very beautiful. Well, Pharaoh then takes her and he's operating under the assumption of the lie that Abraham has told, and that is, hey, this is my sister. Well, as that Genesis chapter 12 draws to a close. Pharaoh becomes aware, uh, who knows exactly how, the Bible doesn't say, but Sarah probably made him aware in no uncertain terms, hey, I'm actually that guy's wife and he's my husband. Pharaoh becomes very upset. He goes to Abraham, he says, hey, why did you lie to me? I've brought the curse of God upon myself and he actually asks them to leave the land. So there's a remarkable little point about this that I want to bring up. Don't miss this. The first thing that we are told about Abraham, after God's call, we might be thinking, oh, Abraham is special. Abraham is a man of great faith. Abraham is a man of great piety and integrity. And while you might be inclined to think that, it is more than a little interesting that the first thing that Abraham is recorded as doing after God's call of him is something that shows a lack of faith and a lack of piety. Now, The next chapter then, the next two chapters in fact, deal with this guy here, Lot. 
that Paul is going to talk to us about in a couple weeks, right? Lot. And without stealing any of Paul's thunder, I definitely would say this. The only reason that Lot seems to really show up in the story at all is because he's Abraham's nephew and he chose to travel with Abraham when he left Haran. If, if Lot had remained where he was and hadn't gone with Abraham, I can assure you we would know nothing about Lot today. But Lot sort of shows up in the story because he's a companion of Abraham, he's a relative of Abraham, and some fascinating sort of things happen in chapters 13 and 14 when Lot is separated from Abraham by virtue of each of them sort of looking out at the plain of Canaan and you go this way and I'll go this way or you go this way and I'll go this way and Abraham defers. He, he humbly defers and says, Lot, you go where you want and I'll take the other. If you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. Well, chapter 14 records that Lot is kidnapped by a number of kings and Abraham goes and rescues him. So in some ways... What, what 13 and 14 are is a great big parenthetical statement between 12 and 15. Because as soon as we get back to Genesis chapter 12, God initiates the covenant with Abraham. And that's what we're talking about today. After the initiation of the covenant with Abraham, here again, what a remarkable sequence. The first thing that happens after God ratifies and, and in, initiates and ratifies his covenant with Abraham is Abraham's unfaithfulness. The next thing that happens is, is that in an act of doubt, in an act of unfaithfulness, in an act of seeming ingenuity, Hagar, under the, or excuse me, Abraham, under the advisement of Sarah, sleeps with Hagar. So don't miss that pattern. In both instances, in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15, God makes a call, Abraham is unfaithful. God makes a covenant, Abraham is unfaithful. There can be no question here that part of what Moses is trying to get through to us is that Abraham was a human being. He was a human being like you and like me. He put his pants on. If he wore pants, he probably didn't. He put his dress on one leg at a time, right? Abraham was just like you and I. He was a normal, everyday human being who was afraid of Pharaoh, who wasn't sure how there was going to be a promised son. And we're going to pick up more of this in just a moment. Then finally in Genesis 17, and this will end uh, sort of our breakdown for today, but be getting too far along, God gives Abraham the sign of the covenant, circumcision. But here's the remarkable thing. That sign of the covenant circumcision would have never been necessary if Abraham, under the advisement of Sarah, hadn't slept with Hagar. And we'll talk about that at the close. So let's see what we've got here. First of all, to sort of, if you're taking notes here, 13 and 14 are clearly a parenthetical statement between God's initial call of Abraham and the covenant that he makes in 15. These two elements here, as we've already mentioned, are Abraham's unfaithfulness, which will follow immediately on the heels of both God's call and God's covenant. And this is really the highlight. This is the highlight not only of the book of Genesis, but clearly this is the point that Moses has been wanting to make all along. That God is going to put the earth back together. That God is going to heal the earth. He's going to heal humanity, both vertically and horizontally. And, and Abraham is central to what God is doing on the earth. This isn't just the story for Moses. As we saw last Sabbath, that's the story for Jesus. That's the story for Paul. That's the story for all the New Testament writers. The utter centrality of Abraham. Now, come with me to Genesis chapter 15. Let's go there. We are now poised to try and understand the nature of this covenant that God makes with Abraham. Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, we read these words. 
After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. His name is not yet Abraham, but for ease of communication, I'm just going to refer to him as Abraham right through. God appears to him and says, Abraham, do not be afraid. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Now that raises the question, why would God say, don't be afraid? Well, in context, it's actually very simple. In 13 and 14, as we've already mentioned here, Lot has been kidnapped and Abraham is gone and, and has taken with aggression and with military force and might Lot and others back from his captors, right? And he's re- reclaimed and recaptured all of the goods. There was a great war that was taking place. It was four kings against five kings. You might call it the Battle of the Nine Kings. And in the midst of that Battle of the Nine Kings, Lot was, was a, a, a casualty. He was uh, not killed, but he was kidnapped. And so Abraham goes over and he gives four of those kings a great big whacking, and then he goes back and he sort of, you know, tries to establish some modicum of peace in his area, but Abraham could have been anticipating that at any moment, the people that he had routed would be making plans to come back and reroute him, and God essentially says, okay, 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 you went and rescued Lot, that's fine, but let's be clear, I didn't bring you to this land to become a warrior, I didn't bring you to this land to start a bunch of wars and, and uh, that sort of thing with the people that already live here, no, 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 I will protect you. Don't worry about, you know, creating and forging and fashioning more swords and more shields and more weaponry. Don't worry about conscripting more men out of your camp to defend and be on watch and even to attack if necessary. He says, no, 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 no. That's not my order of business. That's not plan A. It's not even plan B. I will be your shield and your reward. Verse 2. But Abram said, Lord God. What will you give me seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus, a servant. Now this is a very commonsensical question because God has repeatedly stated to Abraham, I'll give you the land and many descendants as the stars of the sky, as the sand of the sea, so numerous that a man couldn't count. I'll give you descendants, I'll give you descendants, I'll give you descendants, I'll give you descendants. Now Abraham is not a young man at this point and so he has what is certainly a reasonable, defensible and logical question for God. Hey God, how's that gonna happen? I don't even have one child, much less many children. The only thing that could even be remotely akin to an heir in my house is a servant, Eliezer. Verse 3. Then Abram said, Look indeed, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This guy will not be your heir, but the one one who will come from your own body will be your heir. Then he brought him outside, here we go, and he said, look now toward the heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said, so will your descendants be. Now, I don't know if you're in the habit of marking in your Bibles, but if you are, you certainly need to mark the next verse because it is arguably the most important verse in the entire book of Genesis. Now notice, I didn't say it is certainly the most important verse, because you can make a very good case for verses like, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, without which there would be nothing else. But in the book of Genesis, at least as far as the New Testament writers are concerned, this verse is the most important verse. How can I say that? Because it's the verse that's quoted more than any other verse by New Testament writers. This next verse, now let's just sort of set the context. God has called Abraham. God has beckoned Abraham. And God has said, Abraham, 
I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you children, and I'm going to give you the land, and I'm going to give you descendants, and I'm going to make your name great, and you're going to be blessed. And if somebody curses you, they're going to be cursed. I will be your shield. I will, I will, I will, I will. I'm going to do a lot of awesome stuff in you and through you and for you, Abraham. Abraham, overwhelmed by the nature and the scope and the vastness of the promises, does the only appropriate thing. If God made you a bunch of promises, I'm going to do this, and 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 after all that's done, I'm going to do this. What would be the appropriate response if God made you a bunch of promises? Well, the answer would be to believe them. And that's exactly the response that Abraham gives. Verse 6 says, And he believed in the Lord, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. Now, let me just say this in case you're tempted to think that Pastor Asherick preaches a little long. I'm tempted to think the same thing myself at times. Whole volumes, whole theological tomes have been written on that one word, righteousness. Thousands and tens of thousands of pages have been written by various scholars down through the ages on that one word and on this one verse. So I assure you, the few minutes that we'll spend on it here this morning will not even begin to exhaust what's going on here. But I'll give you the short version. God is entering into a relationship. Pick your word. An arrangement. Pick your word. A covenant with Abraham. The nature of that covenant is that God is saying, I'm going to do this, and 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 I'm going to do this. When Abraham hears the size, the scope, the vastness of these promises, he responds by saying, I believe you. And God says, yes. Ah, this is my guy. Because he gets it. He gets it that at the end of the day, it's not his faithfulness that's going to make these promises happen. It's not his ingenuity that's going to make this happen. It's his belief in what I can do. I'm going to do something. And Abraham's like, hey man, I believe it. I believe that you'll give me descendants. I believe that you'll give me the land. I believe that you'll give me a blessing and make me a blessing. I believe that you'll curse those that curse me. I believe you. And all the New Testament writers, not everyone, but James and Paul certainly, and Jesus by implication, who wasn't a writer of course, but he's the central figure of the New Testament, they grab this verse. Genesis 15 verse 6. Abraham believed the promises of God. And let me extend that. A promise is only as good as the faithfulness of the person that makes it. A promise is only as good as the person that makes it. And so Abraham not only believes in the promise, he believes in the promise maker. And he says, by way of response, I believe you. I believe you. Now, as we go and read the rest of Scripture, we find that particularly the book of Genesis, but all of Scripture, is filled with story after story after story after story after story after story of individuals, the central figures in the book of Genesis, who are all trying to make their own way. In fact, I believe that this was one of the unifying motifs of the book of Genesis. You you read the book of Genesis, and and this comes up so often, and and with with such regularity and with such power and with such force, it's clear that this is the point that Moses is often making. Here it is. Genesis is filled with stories of people trying to make their own way. Adam tried to make his own way, sowing fig leaves. 
right? Eve tried to make her own way. I didn't even put her up there because she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was desirable to make one wise. She saw that it was nice to the eyes. I mean, she's trying to make her own way. Abraham tries to make his own way. He hasn't yet, but in chapter 16, when he lies with Hagar, he's going to try to make his own way under the advisement of Sarah. Advancing into the story, some of you will know the story of Rebekah. Rebekah has twins, Jacob and Esau. And an angel appears and says, the older will serve the younger. I'm going to really work through that younger one. That younger one's going to be a cut above, a little bit special. And one day, she overhears, Rebecca overhears that Isaac is about ready to give the promise and the blessing and the birthright to none other than Esau, the oldest. But she had an angel tell her it would be to the youngest. And so she's going to make a way. She comes up with a plan. She gets creative. She, she relies on her own ingenuity and, and uh, she outsmarts Isaac. The problem is, is that she's trying to outsmart God and his plan. There are so many instances of this in Scripture. We have the experience of Jacob himself, who, when Esau came in, rather than just doing it by pious and godly and defensible means, when Esau is famished with hunger, rather than just being kind and generous and obliging, when Esau says, please give me some of that food, I've just at the peril of my life made this long journey, I'm starving, he says, give me the birthright. You see, in each instance, these characters are trying to procure God's promise by their own ingenuity, by their own intelligence, by their own creativity. So too with Laban. Laban is the example. We have the example of Laban where Jacob works and works and works and he wants one daughter, but he ends up with the other. Laban being clever, being creative. Joseph's brothers. Oh, man, we could, go, we could spend a long time on Joseph's brothers. In fact, we'll have a whole series, a sort of sub-series on Joseph and his experience. Now, this is remarkable because you'll notice that every name is up there except Isaac's. All the central figures in Genesis are up there, at least as regards to the family of Abraham, except Isaac. Right? Abraham tried to make his own way, and Sarah tried to make her own way, and, and, and Rebekah tried to make her own way, and Jacob tried to make her own way, and the sons of Jacob tried to make her own way, their own way. Always trying to do for God what God said he would do for them. This is a central motif in Scripture, and it's a central motif in the book of Genesis. Now, let's go back to Genesis 15 and see what happens after Abraham says, God, I believe you. Verse 7. Then God said, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how will I know that I will inherit it? How do I know you're going to do what you say you're going to do? As I said just a moment ago, a promise is only as good as the promise maker. And Abraham here, he's not being cheeky. He's not being um, presumptuous. He's asking an actual question. He's saying, God, I believe your promises. I believe in your faithfulness. But could you give me some ev evidence? How, how can I be sure that you'll do what you say you will do? And God gives an answer that I've preached on this church, I've preached on in this church before, but I'm going to spend just a moment reminding you. God gives a most unusual answer. It seems unusual to us. Abraham says, how do I know you're going to do what you say you're going to do? And God says, bring me five animals. What? Bring me five animals. Verse 9. Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Bring me five animals. Remember, this is an answer or in response to the question, how do I know you're going to do what you say you're going to do? 
Then he brought these to him, and as if it wasn't weird enough, it gets weirder still. Weirder by us here, 2014, 15, modern eyes looking back. Super weird. Not at all weird for Abraham. Then he cut the animals in two down the middle, and he placed the pieces opposite each other. He did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Let me tell you what's happening here. For some of you, you will remember this from the bigger picture series. Others, this will be new to you. God tells Abraham, bring me these animals. And so Abraham does, five animals. He says, take three of them and cut them down the middle. Form a path between them. So just imagine that this is an animal. This is, say, the heifer. And Abraham bifurcates it. He he cuts it in two and puts the pieces opposite one another. And just imagine there's another one here and another one here. He effectively creates a path through severed animals. And to us, I want to say again, this is decidedly weird. How is that in any way an answer to the question, how do I know you'll do what you say you will do? How do I know you'll give me descendants? How do I know you'll give me the land? How do I know you'll be faithful? Watch what, watch what happens here. It's absolutely remarkable. Verse 12. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a horror and a great darkness came upon him. You could translate that verse very simply to say, Abraham fell asleep and had a nightmare. He fell asleep and he had a terrible nightmare. Verse 13. Then God said to Abram, Abraham, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. And will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they will come out with great possessions. But as for you, Abraham, you will go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Okay, let me translate that. God says, this is not going to happen next Thursday. Okay? This isn't happening next week. This isn't happening next month. This isn't happening next Thursday. He says, this is going to take a while. Abraham, get ready to get cozy because you are going to die and you're going to go to sleep. And many descendants after you are going to go to sleep to the tune of not less than 400 years. No wonder Abraham had a nightmare. God showed him that this wasn't happening next Thursday. It wasn't like God called Abraham. I mean, think about it. What, what Moses is telling us here is that the sin problem is not a teensy little problem that could just be quickly, easily, you know, sorted out. It's not a spilled milk problem. That's what I like to say. If you're in your house and, you know, there's a glass of milk and somebody spills it, you know, you don't, you know, call the fire department. You don't get the bulldozer out. You don't call Pete Johnson to bring us his moving equipment. Hey, we got a glass of spilled milk here. No, 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 you just get a rag and you wipe it up. You tilt the glass back up, you pour milk in it, we're sweet. Okay, sin is nothing like that. Clearly, if Scripture is telling us anything, it's that sin is not spilled milk. Sin is radioactivity. Sin is nuclear meltdown stuff. Sin is radioactivity in the water. It's radioactivity in the air. It's radioactivity in the soil. Sin is not spilled milk. It's a great, big, giant, huge problem. It's going to take a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of sacrifice. A lot of what word did I say there? A lot of sacrifice. In fact, it's going to take one gigantic sacrifice to clean this radioactive mess up. So God says to Abraham, I'll I'll show you how you can be sure that I'm going to be faithful. Bring me those animals, cut them down the middle. 
Abraham goes to sleep and he has a terrible nightmare in which God says to him, this isn't happening next Thursday. This is going to take hundreds of years. Now watch what happens. Verse 17. And it came to pass when the sun went down that it was dark. That usually happens. Behold, there was a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. That is one of the weirdest verses in the entire book of Genesis. Abraham goes to sleep. The sun goes down. He's had his nightmare. God has said, this is going to take a really long time. And then it says, in purposefully vague and opaque language, but maybe it was vague and opaque because there was really no other way to describe what was going on. God showed Moses in vision what Abraham saw. And as Abraham sort of woke up perhaps from his slumber, and this happens to you and you've been woken up, you know, in the middle of the night, you sort of look around. He sees those pieces of sacrificed animal that he had been driving the vultures away from, but he doesn't, they're not, they're lit. There's like a strange glow coming from the midst of them, and it says that there was a burning torch and a smoking oven passing in the midst of the pieces. What? A smoking oven and a burning torch passing in the midst of those pieces. Well, let me give you the short version. That's God. In fact, to be more precise, that's Jesus. It's Jesus that shows up again and again in the Old and the New Testaments as light. In fact, the New Testament would actually say, he's the light that lights every man that comes into the world. You'd have passages like this. In the very beginning of Scripture, let there be light, and there was light. You have passages like this. It would say that the children of Israel were led by a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night, smoke and fire. When Moses would later appear at the burning bush, it was a bush consumed by fire, smoke and fire. In the very most holy place of the sanctuary, there was something called the Shekinah. It was a light. It was a glory. It was a celestial uh, uh, fire. There's a really weird verse in the New Testament that actually says God is a consuming fire. And so when Abraham wakes up from his slumber, when he wakes up from his sleep and he glances over at those bifurcated pieces of flesh, he sees... And what Moses is trying to communicate here is the very presence of God walking between them, brooding over them. And we think, well, what's that about? Again, the short version. A covenant is an agreement. We make covenants today, but we don't cut up animals. When we make a covenant today, we, we extend the hand. If I, if I make a covenant with, with Jamin for a certain thing, just stand up here briefly, Jamin. If I make a covenant with Jamin, we, we might have a shake on it. Okay, now watch what's happening here. Jamin is extending himself. David is extending himself. And a union or a bond is being formed here. Symbolically, we're coming to an agreement. This is being created. Okay, that's the same kind of thing that's taking place here. The heifer is whole, the goat is whole, the ram is whole, it's whole, but they were sacrificed and then split. And what Abraham would have understood, and what any person from the ancient Near East would have understood, what's taking place here is that both participants in the covenant 
both participants in the arrangement are saying, if I break this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. May I be split. May I be sundered. May I be cleaved in two. Remember, Abraham had said, how do I know you're going to do what you say you're going to do? And God said, bring me some sacrifices. Cut them in two. Cut them in two, Abraham. Abraham cuts them in two. And then he sees God himself, Christ himself, walking in the midst of those pieces, brooding over the sacrifice that he knows will be made in response to the violation of the covenant. But God knows that that covenant violation will not come from him. God knows that the covenant violation will come from Abraham and his descendants. In answer to the question, how do I know that you'll do what you say you will do? This is what God is saying. This is very, you know, ancient and primitive and bloody practices. Here's what God's saying. I pledge my life to it. I pledge my life to what I have said to you, Abraham. I will bless you. I will put the earth back together. I will heal man both vertically and horizontally. Anybody that curses you will be cursed. Anyone that blesses you will be blessed. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How do I know you're going to do what you say you're going to do? I pledge my life to it. And he knew that that's exactly what he would do. Then verse 18. Man, these verses are just so pregnant with meaning. This isn't white bread. This is like whole wheat bread. Every verse leaping off of the page. Verse 18, check it out. On the same day the Lord made, what did he make? He made a covenant with Abram. There it is. Circle it, underline it, put a smiley face by it, do something. He made a covenant. Now, I'm just gonna spend a moment here, just the briefest of moments, letting you appreciate in as much as you can the ridiculousness of this. The infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, eternal, illimitable, immaterial, spiritual creator God of the universe just entered into an arrangement with a little worm, with a little piece of dust, and then said, when that little piece of dust had the temerity to ask, how do I know you do what you'll say you do? I pledge my life to it, he said. Just appreciate the condescension and the humility of God making an arrangement and an agreement with dust. And furthermore, with dust that he himself had made. I echo the words of C.S. Lewis when he said, surely this is the greatest of all miracles. That the creator would fashion something that was capable of resisting and questioning the creator. That the creator would form and fashion something that could look him back in the eye and say no. Or ask questions about the nature of his integrity, the nature of his intention, and the nature of his plan. Surely, surely for a moment, we can bask this morning in the condescension and the humility of God in making an arrangement with a piece of dust. And then pledging his life to it. Well, here's what happens. 
Through this seemingly strange ceremony, God committed himself utterly to Abraham and to his descendants. And let me just tell you, let me, let me, let me modernize that. Through this seemingly strange ceremony, God committed himself utterly to you. Because you are, either by faith or by genealogy, a descendant of Abraham. You're a descendant of dust. You're the offspring of a little worm that lives on a little speck of a little piece of rock in some corner of God's illimitable universe. And God committed himself to you. Abraham believed God and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Allow me now to give you a tour de force on why that verse is so important. Why should Genesis 15, 6 be so important? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Why should that be the verse? Well, here's a brief tour de force. Let's see how fast Pastor Asherick can read. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Most assuredly, I say to you that he, that he who believes in me has everlasting life. John 6, 47. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? John eleven twenty five. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. Luke gets in on it too. Acts ten forty three. Acts thirteen thirty nine. By him, everyone who believes is justified from all the things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Romans 1.16, probably the most famous verse in all of Paul's voluminous writings. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. Romans 10 verse 4, for Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Romans chapter 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 10 and 11, for with the heart one believes to righteousness. And there's that word again. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him. It was credited to him. It was given to him. It was imputed to him for righteousness. With the mouth, with the heart one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made to salvation. For scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Galatians chapter 3, verse 22, but the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, Peter gets in on the action. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. 1 John chapter 5, verse 10, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has turned God into a liar. Ooh, see, that's what happens. When you don't believe what God says, when he's pledged his life to it, you've turned God into a liar. Because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his own son. You see, friends, Genesis is filled with the stories of people trying to make their own way. And when you try to make your own way, what you're effectively saying is, I don't believe. I don't believe, God, that you can pull this off. God, you've got to sleep with Hagar. I don't think you can pull this off. You need to lie and put some sheepskin on your, on your body so that your dad will think that you're the other son. I don't think God can pull this off. Again and again, we see people, not just in the book of Genesis, but through all human history, trying to do for God what God said he would do for humanity. Abraham and Sarah tried to do for God what he said he would do for them. Now, here's the remarkable thing. When we get back to Genesis, and that's why I gave you a bit of a schematic there at the beginning. Go back to Genesis if you're, you're probably still there. 
Genesis 15, the rest of verse 18 says, The same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. From the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Done. That's Genesis 15. Genesis 16 is a period of a decade taking place, and then Abraham and Sarah contriving and, and conceiving of how they could do for God what God said he would do for them. And lo and behold, Abraham lives with Hagar, and Ishmael is born. In effect, what God, excuse me, in effect what Abraham tried to do was solve his problems, solve the promise of God, and fulfill the promise of God with his own, and I'll be very delicate here this morning, with his own masculinity. So in Genesis 17, which is the very next chapter, God says, we will alter that masculinity irrevocably. And so you will be an old man with a barren wife and wounded genitals, and I will still keep my promise to you. Circumcision then becomes a sign to trust God and not to lean on flesh. Your own ingenuity, your own intelligence, your own creativity, your own plans, your own workings. Circumcision becomes a sign of doing the very thing that you said you would do. Trusting and believing that when God pledges his life to something, he will do it. When God pledges his life to something, he will do it. Jesus said, whoever believes in me will never die. And then he asked the question, do you believe this? You see, friends, at the end of the day, my entrance into the new earth and the new heaven and your entrance into the new earth and the new heaven is not predicated on the correct answers to a theology quiz. And thank God for that, because most of you wouldn't make it. God isn't saying, I'm saving smart people, I'm saving informed people, I'm saving educated people. God is saying... And that's why we went through all of those passages and we literally looked at the tip of the tip of the iceberg of the passages in the New Testament that use the word believe. God is saying, I'm not saving smart people. I'm not saving intelligent people. I'm not saving informed people. That's not the point. I'm saving believing people. If you believe in me, Jesus says, you will never die. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And then he says, do you believe what I'm saying to you? Unlike those sacrificed and separated animals... God says, you will never die. Well, how so? You will never die or be cut off if you believe that Jesus was cut up and cut off and sacrificed for you. See, that's what's going on here. When that smoking oven and that burning torch is passing through the pieces, this is Jesus himself counting the cost. This here is little more than an ancient Near Eastern symbolic representation of the cross. And Jesus says, do you believe? I'm going to invite my guys to come up here and sing us our final song. This really remarkable thing happens. God does what he said he would do. And Isaac is born. Now, I'm not going to talk about Isaac particularly today because, thank you for that, Take the flesh. Don't get any blood on you. 
because we're going to have a whole sermon on Isaac, but we have to mention Isaac briefly for this simple reason. The name Isaac, which is from the Hebrew Itzak, which means to laugh. It was a perpetual reminder that when God made his promise to Abraham and Sarah, the response of both of them was to laugh in the face of God. Man, his tolerance is remarkable. God says, you want to laugh at me? You want to laugh at my promise? You want to laugh at my commitment? You want to laugh at my faithfulness? You want to laugh at my power? You will name your child laughter. So that every time you call him for dinner, every time you call him to come clean up his room, every time you say his name, you will be reminded, you doubted me, you laughed at me, and you didn't believe. The birth of Isaac, the promised son, anticipates Jesus, the promised one. You see, both circumcision the sign of the covenant, and the birth of Isaac say the same thing. And that is that God will be faithful. Your response, your responsibility, and the obligation that you are under is the very same response, the very same responsibility, and the very same obligation that Abraham was under. Genesis 15, verse 6. And Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him for righteousness. God calls on you and me to believe that he will make a way. We might conceive, we might construct, we might create, we might be real clever. But at the end of the day, God says, I've made a way. At the expense of myself, at the expense of my son, and at the expense of all heaven... I will keep my covenant with Abraham and with his descendants. That is, with you. Father in heaven, you're the maker of the mountains. And you're the maker of us. And so when we come up against those realities in life that seem inscrutable and impossible, whether they be financial or physical, or spiritual, or relational. Father, when we come hard up against the realities and the difficulties and the vicissitudes of life, when it seems to us that there is no way, and we say to you, God, how do we know you'll do what you say you'll do? How do we know you'll keep your promise? How do we know you'll keep your covenant? How do we know you'll be faithful? Father, you who made the mountains, one day in the person of your Son, the two of you, Jesus physically and you alongside him, walked to the top of a mountain where Jesus was laid down and nailed to a piece of wood, a tree that he himself had crafted and created. And he was raised up, pitched between heaven and earth. And Father, there as we see Christ suspended on Calvary and you brooding over him in anguish, we are keenly aware that when you say you will do it, you will. When you promise and pledge your faithfulness, we can believe it. We can trust it. 
And so, Father, today we're thankful that your faithfulness did not run out 2,000 years ago. But you're still faithful today. When there's more month than money, you're still faithful. When our children are more interested in anything and everything but religion, you're still faithful. When age and gravity are having their way with us, and the older we get, the better we were, you're still faithful. When the cancer test comes back positive, you're still faithful. When that car accident happens, you're still faithful. When wars and rumors of wars spread through the land, you're still faithful. And when the world is coming apart at the seams and we feel it sometimes that our own lives are coming apart at the seams, when we're so busy that we can't even find time to think, you are still faithful. Father, you have pledged yourself to us. And we wouldn't want to make the mistake of pledging ourselves to you because we know we would fail. So what we're going to do today and every day is what Abraham did. We're going to believe in your faithfulness. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Let all of God's believing children say, Amen.